excited to have Dr. Alana Turt here with us today. Everyone, welcome to Osteobites. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteoangel Dylan and the Director of Scientific Programs at MIB Agents. And today on Osteobites, we're talking with Dr. Alana Church from Boston Children's Hospital about the study that was recently published in Nature Medicine just a couple weeks ago um, with Dr. Katie Janeway and many other collaborators demonstrating the clinical utility of molecular tumor profiling for children with cancer. Thanks so much, Dr. Church, for joining us on Osteobites today. We are so thrilled to have you. Um, this paper was just published recently, so we're really excited uh, to get the scoop and this really timely update from Dr. Church. And thanks to Vicki for joining us as our panelists today. Um, Vicki is an osteo warrior, and she's also on our MIB Agents Junior Advisory Board. Um, so first, a little bit more about our guest today. Dr. Alana Church is a board-certified pediatric pathologist, molecular genetic pathologist. She's the Associate Director of the Laboratory for Molecular Pediatric Pathology at Boston Children's Hospital, and she's also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She's participated in several high-impact studies using molecular profiling for pediatric cancers, including the ICAT study, profile study, and the ongoing multi-institutional gain consortium study. Her career is dedicated to implementing high-quality, accessible molecular profiling tests to support the care of children with cancer. And before we get started, um, I just have a few announcements. We are back from Factor, which was amazing. We took a couple weeks off um, during Factor, um, but uh, here's what you missed if you weren't there. The Osteo Warriors defeated the Docs in our Docs versus Warriors opening ceremony and took back the Golden Bone. And Vicki here uh, beat Dr. John Healy, who's like legendary orthopedic surgeon from um, Memorial Sloan Kettering. She beat him at the Game of Operations. So I think Vicki, you have a new career to explore. Um, we have lots of collaboration with um, our pre-factor mingle at Mike Hess Brewing, our eight scientific panels with 50 speakers. We had wellness sessions and seminars for patients and families. And we even had a healing hearts session for bereaved families. So there was really something for everyone this year in the osteosarcoma community. And more importantly, it brought us all together to collaborate for a cure. So we'll be sharing more highlights, videos and photos soon. Keep an eye out for those. And um, we have even more events coming up this summer. Um, July, as you all know, is Sarcoma Awareness Month. Um, so please join us for our virtual outrunning osteosarcoma event um, where you can run, walk, or cycle with us and you can help cause a cure. Um, with MIB agents, no one walks um, through osteosarcoma alone. So let's go out running together and we'll put the registration link in the chat. Um, also, to commemorate Sarcoma Awareness Month, MIB Agents is partnering with Kendra Scott for a multi-city give-back event taking place the weekend of July 15th to the 17th. By making a purchase during this weekend, you are helping raise funds and awareness for osteosarcoma. There's also a promo code that you can use online, and um, I'll put that in the chat as well. And if you aren't familiar with Kendra Scott, definitely uh, Google her, check it out. She makes really great jewelry. Um, and then in September, we encourage you to be bold and go gold for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Um, you can make and sell bows in your community or make a donation this summer and get a bow that shows you care. Um, and you can contact Anita, our events manager, to volunteer, and I'll also put her email in the chat. And um, we are very grateful to the Osteosarcoma Institute. This episode is sponsored by the Osteosarcoma Institute, OSI, which is a nonprofit organization led by osteosarcoma experts from top US cancer centers who together are concentrating on the cure for osteosarcoma. The mission of OSI is to dramatically increase treatment options and survival rates in osteosarcoma patients through identifying and funding the most promising and breakthrough osteosarcoma clinical trials and science. In addition to advancing research, OSI also provides a free resource called OSI Connect, for osteosarcoma patients. Our osteosarcoma experts can discuss available treatments, possible side effects, and provide helpful advice for getting the most out of your visits with your treating physician. And this resource is available in English and Spanish and aims to help patients and families to find answers to their questions. All right, so thank you, OSI. And I'm gonna hand it over to Vicki to introduce herself. Hi everyone, my name is Vicki. I think Christina already did a good job of briefly introducing me, but I am a, a junior advisory board member and I was so happy to be at Factor not too long ago. And 
still really surprised that I beat Dr. Healy at Operation, but we had to do it with our non-dominant hand. So I guess I'm just a little better with my right hand than his left hand, but yeah, that's uh, kind of about me. All right, great. And Dr. Church, it already looks like you got your slides up, which is great. I um, mean, we'll just uh, hand it over to you to get started. Great, thank you both so much. It's so great to be here. And I also had a great time at uh, the Factor meeting. So it was really fun to see everybody there. Um, and I'm really pleased to be here with you today. So I get to be the one to talk about our, our paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, Molecular profiling identifies targeted therapy opportunities in pediatric solid cancers. Um, so just an overview of what we're going to talk about today. What did we do in the study and why? What did we find out and what does it mean for the uh, sort of greater community? So I get to be the kind of mouthpiece of this uh, project, but there's a ton of authors, as you can see, all these names um, on the paper. Um, so it's very, you know, this is the work of many people over many years um, to bring this to you. And I, I, I'm happy to be able to speak on their behalf, but I, I don't take credit, you know, in any way for all of the work that's gone into this. Um, so the GAIN Consortium study is a prospective um, cohort study enrolling patients aged up to 30 years with advanced solid tumors, and we enroll patients from 12 children's cancer centers all across the United States. So the format of the study is that we um, enroll oncologists, patients, and families, and they are, are consented to the study. And then we take tumor samples from their tumor from any procedures that they've had in the course of their clinical care, whether it's a biopsy or a surgery, and we do some testing um, using next generation sequencing as sort of the core testing. So it's a molecular tumor profiling assay that we're using and identifying alterations that are really aimed to influence the care of the patient. So the primary aim of the study is to identify molecular alterations, which might give us another option for a targeted therapy for the patient. Every patient who has a test that go, goes through this panel um, gets a report that goes back to their oncologist explaining the results and some of the ways that that might influence their care. There's a ton of work that happens in the back end on the data collection because there are so many patients in this study. We have over 800 patients um, enrolled now, um, keeping track of all of the patients and all their information, the sequencing results, um, and then all of the evidence and reports that are going back to them. Dr. So I'll just, freezing up a little bit. Oh dear, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what to do. Should I go back and did I miss anything important? <laughs> I'm not getting a message about my internet connection. I'll just try to forge ahead, but please tell me if I'm, if you've missed something. Yeah, I'm just seeing uh, Christina kind of break in and out. I think your, your Wi-Fi is okay though. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, well, let's go, go ahead and please, Vicki and Christina, tell me if I should back up. Um, so I'll just step away from the study for a moment just to talk about what we mean when we say molecular alterations and molecular profiling. So a molecular or genetic alteration is a change that happens in the DNA within the cancer cell itself. And so this is a difference of the DNA between what's going on in the cancer cell and what's happening in the other cells of the body. And these genetic changes are really what drive the tumor to grow and, um, uh, you know, to, to be the type of tumor that it is. And there are also changes that can happen in the DNA, which might influence the care. So these alterations um, can give us some clues about how, um, about a specific diagnosis, there may be some genetic alterations that influence the prognosis. So they give us a, a hint that the tumor may be more or less aggressive than others that look the same under the microscope. Um, and some um, molecular alterations are associated with response to targeted treatments. And so the targeted treatment landscape really ch has changed a lot over time. So new drugs are being developed all the time and pairing the molecular alteration with the available drugs that are available now, you know, is an ongoing project and a lot of work. And so that's some, a lot of the work that's happened behind the scenes in this study as well. <clears throat> and Alana, does, does it also cover RNA, changes in RNA when you talk about changes in the DNA? 
Yeah, so the way that that those they're related. So if we think about sort of tumor biology or any sort of genetic biology, the DNA is kind of the blueprint um, for the cell and what the cell is going to do and all the proteins that's going to make. And then the RNA is like the in-between step. So the DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein, and then the proteins are the ones that kind of like do the job of the cell. Um, <clears throat> And the RNA is present in the cell in sort of a transient way. And we make use of both DNA and RNA sequencing um, assays. So sometimes it makes more sense to go look at the DNA as sort of the primary target. And sometimes it makes more sense to look at the RNA. We'll talk in a few minutes about gene fusions and the gene fusion assay that we primarily used in this project was based on RNA. And for, for many reasons, mostly because we get rid of some of the introns, which are really long sequences in DNA that, that are difficult to assess, the RNA is really a nice way to assess for gene fusion. So, so we have a combination of DNA next generation sequencing and RNA next generation sequencing. Um, and on the technical side, I think some of these results will um, sort of advocate for using that RNA sequencing, especially when we're looking for gene fusions, which we'll, we'll get to in, in a couple of minutes. That's a, that was a very sophisticated question. <laughs> <'Cause, yeah. laughs> Um, so let's, if we want to talk about the cancer genome and what, what do we mean by that, the model that we typically think of or that most people think of if they thought about, um, you know, cancer genetics is this one that re really models what an adult carcinoma looks like. So the more common um, cancers that we see in adults like breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, um, you know, follow this kind of progression where, you know, you start with the genetics of the person, you know, before they had any cancers and then the cells acquire mutations over time. And at some point the cells have required so many mutations of just the sort of right or wrong flavor, depending on kind of how you think of it to, to turn that cell into a cancer cell. Um, but the pediatric cancer genome really works quite differently. A lot of the time, there's not an accumulation of mutations over time because the child hasn't lived for all those years, right, to have even gotten to that point. But they often have a single, you know, genetic event that's more like, a, you know, I put a lightning bolt here, but one big change that really switches that cell from being a non-cancer cell to being a cancer cell. And then everything kind of flows from there. So we have to think differently about how we test and uh, what different types of alterations we're looking for when we're thinking about a child with cancer, because they really don't have the same um, cancer genome that an adult with cancer would have. Um, and so many of these events that we see in this study and others have shown this in studies of pediatric cancers as well are gene fusions. So when we talk about gene fusions, there are two genes that usually live far, far apart from one another, you know, within the cell, but on different chromosomes, for example, and there's a break that happens on, in both genes, and then the parts of the two genes come together. So you have sort of half of one and half of the other, and they create this hybrid gene sort of at the DNA level, which also gets translated into RNA and then creates this hybrid protein. And that can be a very powerful driver of cancer. Um, so the example that I have here is a TP53 USP6 fusion, which is one that we actually saw in one of the patients in the study. And I'll, I'll describe why that was important for that patient. Um, but we have seen fusions over and over again in the um, pediatric cancer population. And we really um, you know, show here how important the gene fusions are when we're thinking about those clinically relevant alterations that can impact their diagnosis and their treatment options. So the reason that we did this study and sort of set it up the way that we did um, is that molecular tumor profiling using these kind of you know, newer techniques like next generation sequencing have really become more the standard of care for many adult cancers, but still is not routine for many children with um, cancer and including um, solid tumors. So a, a great example on the adult cancer side is uh, lung cancer. So just over the last 10 years, a patient now who has lung cancer would be um, you know, the standard of care to have many genetic tests done to identify different um, molecular alterations, which can really impact their therapy. And then the therapeutic decision-making you know, really flows from the results of those studies. And the vision behind all of this really, um, you know, is all thanks to um, Dr. Janeway, who is the senior author of this study, and, and knew, you know, many years ago that this is the path that we would be on, and that these data would really be needed to, to demonstrate 
the importance of doing this, these uh, assays, not just on a research basis, but really for, for clinical care for children at the time of their diagnosis to really direct their, their care going forward. So these are some of the conclusions that we found from the study, and we'll walk through some of them um, in more detail. Um, but most importantly, clinically relevant molecular alterations were identified in most of our patients, 86%. Um, so the molecular alterations are shown to be important for selecting targeted treatment. They have an important impact on the diagnosis. And gene fusions are really important, and they're common in this patient population. So let's start with the treatment. Oh, I'm going to progress my slide here. Okay. So we'll start by talking about the treatments, but first let's just talk about who's in this study. So the, the enrollment criteria are very broad. So any child with a, a solid tumor, extracranial solid tumor, um, you know, who is either newly diagnosed, relapsed refractory, but really at a high risk or they have an uncertain diagnosis was eligible. So we have a lot of different diagnoses represented within this cohort. This is the, this cohort represents the first 345 patients who had successful sequencing done through the study. Um, and this mix of patients, I think, really reflects what a lot of pediatric oncologists and pediatric pathologists see in their practice, which is that there are a lot of rare tumor types. Um, we have a, a, a lot of sarcomas. So osteosarcoma, as you can see, is our most common single diagnosis. And then if we put all the sarcomas together, we have that's more represents more than half of the cohort. And that a lot of rare tumors, even that other category, even though we're already into the rare stuff, the other category is quite big as well. Um, so, and again, this is some of the work that's going on in the back end. When we're talking about therapeutic alterations, we have a, a huge group of people because we have particip you know, participants from all of these different cancer centers really thinking through every molecular alteration that we identified and the, the potential for it to be a therapeutic impact for the patient. So we keep track of all of those. We have these tumor boards, you know, very often where we discuss, um, you know, new trials that are coming up you know, complicated cases, and then the reports get generated from that. And I think also importantly for this study, when we were doing the analysis, you know, we kept track of the reports that went back to patients at the time that their um, assays were done. And those, those reports went back in real time. But we also, you know, as part of the study, reanalyzed every variant so that we were doing them all at the same time, because there are changes over time, you know, even an alteration that we might have seen a couple of years ago, um, you know, might point to um, a potential one on a clinical and maybe the trial closed now. And I knew there were resolutions over time, which I think also sort of speaks to some of why this can be difficult for, for, for people to kind of do in, in real life because it's so, um, so complex, but we have a great team. So that was great for us. So if we're putting all of these together, so for every patient worth, we're identifying alterations that are potentially relevant to their therapy, their diagnosis or their prognosis. And here we have our 345 patients and each little figure represents 10. So you can see that most of the patients in the study had one or more alterations that would point to a potential for a therapy, um, prognostic alteration, di diagnostic alteration, or a combination of those. And so and a very much smaller number that really didn't have anything that we were able to find to, to potentially impact their care. So when we're talking about match targeted therapies, what we mean when we say that is that there's a specific molecular alteration that we found, um, you know, through one of these sequencing assays that points to a specific drug that would target either that alteration or the, the pathway that that alteration um, is influencing. So just, just to kind of clarify, because, you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about uh, treatments. This is a very complicated um, diagram that was not made by me, but um, Hannah Como, who is one of our um, uh, wonderful research coordinators, created this graph. So what we're looking at here is a way of sort of representing some of the many um, therapeutic recommendations that were made. So on the bottom, you can see the gene. And so if we look at, for example, the left side, we can see TP53 is a gene there. And if we look up and down, we're looking at different drug classes. The size of the dot represents 
the number of recommendations that were made. And there are different drug classes that can be you know, recommended for different genes. Some of them, you know, are in the same pathways. And then there are different trials that sort of open and close over time. So for any one um, gene, you may have multiple dots on that line um, and so on. So this is really, you know, again, representing some of the complexity here. Yeah, this is an incredible chart. Um, and a lot of, for, uh, just to clarify, so for all the sequencing yeah. that was done, this was using the Onco panel? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so every patient in this cohort had oncopanel sequencing done. That's sort of the core technology for, uh, for this study. Um, and all of those 345 patients had tumor tissue that was available, and they were able to sort of successfully get a, a report out because the, the test worked. You know, we had enough DNA to make the test work. We also did RNA sequencing on many of the patients, and we show in the paper in sort of the supplemental figures some, the criteria that we would use for whether a patient does or doesn't get um, RNA sequencing. And it really depends on the diagnosis. So if we found everything that we were looking for, you know, in the Oncopanel um, assay, then they sort of, you know, typically stop there. But for a lot of the sarcomas or, or um, uh, you know, tumors that are really driven by fusions, we added that RNA panel because that really helped us uh, to get more information about the, about the fusions. All right, so when we're thinking about treatment recommendations, so we had 200 patients who had an ICAT, which was the, the tiering system that we used to um, assess treatment um, evidence for um, match targeted therapy. So 200 patients had an ICAT recommendation and were alive at the time the results um, were received. And then we follow, you know, followed them through to see what, what happened and what, the, what kind of therapy they sort of pursued. So we have both patients in the newly diagnosed category and also patients who were in the relapsed and refractory category. So many of them went on to get unmatched treatment and we were not, the study itself was not directing any, anybody to do or not do, you know what I mean, any treatment. Everybody was making their own decisions, you know, with their oncologist about what was right for them. And so many of the patients, you know, again, depending on their stage and, and what was happening with them were following really more standard of care. So they were getting unmatched treatment. Some of them weren't getting treatment at all. Maybe they had been just treated with surgery and some patients did go on to get um, matched um, treatment. I think it's also um, notable on these graphs that you can see that some patients had um, ICAT recommendations made about treatments that they could pursue, but that the um, targeted treatments actually weren't available to them. So that's another role for advocacy, you know, for us going forward. Well, I was going to say, and you might be getting uh, into this in your future slides, but just what some of those barriers were or reasons for not pursuing the match treatment. So you mentioned like in some cases there wasn't um, therapy available or in some cases insurance doesn't cover the um, the medication so the patient can't pursue it because it costs like twenty thousand dollars a month or something um yeah i don't i don't have that that granular of data about what happened in the, for those 20 patients and why they didn't um you know end up pursuing or sort of having those treatments available to them but i i, I expect as you just mentioned that there's really a, a variety of reasons i mean some of the things are geographic too, right? You know, if there's a clinical trial available, but it's not anywhere that the patient could actually get to, you know, is it really <laughs> available to them? Um, you know, so there's a lot of complexity, as you know, in, in sort of pursuing these, um, you know, newer treatments and, and things that are still on, on trial. I mean, one of the other things too that, that often comes up is um, the age of the patient. You know, sometimes, sometimes there's a drug that's available for adults um, and that may not be available or may not have the um, safety, you know, profiling done to make it accessible to younger children. So that's another, you know, potential barrier out there. Great. And I was just going to say, uh, Dr. Janeway is in the chat right now. Okay. Um, and so she said she could comment. So I asked her to comment in the chat because I'm not quite sure how to get her on screen um, on the webinar. So. Yes, Thanks, she's, the, she, she's the one that holds all of those details <laughs> for us. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so to give an example of a patient who did get treatment uh, match targeted therapy and was one of the ones that we would, uh, you know, classify it as a responder. This patient is a 14 year old boy who had a grade three neuroendocrine carcinoma of large cell type. And we found through the study, a gene fusion. So we'll keep talking about those gene fusions. So this is a BRAF fusion. And BRAF is a gene that, um, you know, has fusions and alterations and also is one that, you know, potentially is targetable by a match targeted therapy. And so this patient did get a targeted therapy of trametinib um, and had a partial response, um, which lasted for five months. Um, so uh, yeah, so this was one of our seven patients who we counted as um, responders to match targeted therapy. If we look at all of the patients together who had um, uh, who, who were treated with match targeted therapy. You can see them all here. This is what we call a swimmer's plot. So we group them together. The top group is the ones who responded. So we have our seven patients, the patient that we just saw um, on the prior slide with neuroendocrine carcinomas right here in the middle, um, you know, was treated with trametinib. And then we can see how long the um, uh, treatment lasted for and what was the best um, response. And so as you can see, sort of going through this, we have a small group of responders here. We have patients who were not eligible to be a responder, and then some patients who got match targeted therapy and progressed on therapy. And I'm glad that Dr. Janeway is here because if there are complicated questions about this graph, she's really the best person to answer those as well. I think one of the things that I really wanna point out that it's important of these seven patients who were responders, six of the seven responded to um, drugs that match to a fusion. So of the top um, uh, six here, you can see there's a notch one and track fusion, two BRAF fusions, RET fusion and ALK fusion. And then there was a, you know, another um, patient who responded to a, a sequence change, a, you know, a, a therapy that matched to a sequence change. So again, these fusions are sort of showing themselves to be very important. Sorry, could you just explain the um, not eligible to be a responder with that? I think this is a question for Katie too. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I I can't recall. I'm sorry. Let's ask no, Katie okay. when we get to the no, chat. We'll put that in, Dr. Jane, if you can put that in the chat, that'd be great. Thanks. Thanks. Um, Okay, so if we think about the impact on diagnosis, although this wasn't really a primary aim of the study to um, identify diagnostic alterations, this sort of comes up, and this is certainly in my wheelhouse as a pathologist because we think about diagnosis all the time, and pathologists are really using a lot of these sequencing assays at the time of diagnosis to support or um, to help us make a specific diagnosis. Um, so here we have another patient who is an example of um, a patient who had a, a real-time impact on their diagnosis. So this young man um, presented um, with pain in his leg and had a, a, a tumor that was identified in the bone on imaging that you can see on the left, um, was treated at first, um, you know, with sort of more conservatively and had a diagnosis made of an aneurysmal bone cyst, which is a benign tumor. And then the, the tumor recurred. And so it was sort of not quite behaving, you know, in the way that we might expect an aneurysmal bone cyst to, to behave, um, had another pathology assessment and, and looking under the microscope, um, you know, the cells looked more aggressive than you would expect to see, so more um, pleomorphic than we would expect to see for an aneurysmal bone cyst. And so what we did for the study was, again, we're able to identify a gene fusion. So TP53 fusions are ones that we often see in osteosarcoma. USP6 fusions are ones that we often see in aneurysmal bone cysts. And this patient actually had a TB53 USP6 fusion where those two genes were coming together. And so this hasn't been reported before. Um, and it's very interesting thinking about the tumor biology, which we don't have to get you know, too much into right now. But um, you know, these, this result was really unexpected. It was interesting in that it sort of explained, I think, a bit of you know, the presentation that the patient had, which didn't quite fit with any aneurysmal bone cyst nor with an osteosarcoma. And then, you know, using these results, and this was sort of in real time based on the histology. So what it looked like under the microscope, plus the knowledge of this gene fusion, the patient did get a diagnosis of um, osteosarcoma 
and um, has been treated according to osteosarcoma protocols and is actually done very well. Um, so that was a, a, an example of a patient who had a real-time impact on their diagnosis. And we actually had 17 patients, you know, out of this three, group of 345 who had um, diagnostic changes. So they enrolled with this one diagnosis and then had either a clarification or a change in their diagnosis based on the molecular alterations that we saw. The other way that we can think about, <clears throat> excuse me, diagnostic alterations in this group is that we can identify alterations that um, could have an impact on the, <laughs> excuse me, the patient's diagnosis. Um, and there are a lot of different types of alterations that we expect to see, especially in a patient cohort as diverse as this. Excuse me, I'm just going to get a sip of water. <clears throat> and while you're doing it, so this is another like a beautiful graphic. Um, and while you're getting that water, um, I might just set up the question and you're probably going to do this anyway, but if you wouldn't mind just giving us like the brief primer on fusions versus sequence variants versus the copy number alteration. Oh, sure. Yeah, this is a great time to do that because I'm going to talk about fusions again in a second. Let me get my water. So the gene fusions that we um, saw, like we saw in that, that prior patient where the TB53 and USP6 sort of each break off and then come together to make a hybrid um, gene, which leads to a hybrid protein, that's something that we're seeing over and over again here. But, um, you know, especially if you look at an adult carcinoma model, we also see many sequence variants and people often use the word mutation to describe just a single base, base pair change. So if we have like the DNA is like a long string and we have these A, T, G, and C in different sequences, and that's really, you know, the foundation of all of the genetic code, you can have just a one base pair change that really, you know, changes the whole protein and sort of the way that it works and can be like a strong driver. So in BRAF, which is a, a gene that we just saw in our other patient who had the BRAF fusion, we sometimes see BRAF point mutations, um, and those also can influence the tumor biology and could potentially be targetable. We also see copy number changes. This is like, now we're getting into the weeds of, of genetic, you know, cancer genetics here, but that's another type of alteration that we can see in the, in the data when we're looking through the um, next generation sequencing results. Did that make sense? Yes. <laughs> so knowing that we have all these different types of alterations, because we just talked about fusions, sequence variants, and copy number alterations, if we look at all of the alterations that we saw in all of these 345 patients, and we ask like, how many of these could have an impact on the diagnosis or could sort of support the pathologist at the time they're making the diagnosis, and we can see, so in this pie chart, all of the 345 patients are represented there. Um, and we're looking, we're, we've identified diagnostically significant alterations in more than half of these patients. And then we've categorized them according to the diagnostic alteration type. So the fusions are shown in green, the sequence variants are shown in yellow, and the copy number alterations are shown in purple. And you can see there's a lot of green, right? So most of the diagnostic alterations um, are fusions. And then on the outer ring of this graph, we did another analysis to ask the question, would we have been able to identify these alterations using some of the older techniques? So we're really focused on using next generation sequencing, both the DNA panel and the RNA panels that we talked about. And so the pink is showing us ones that could have been partly identified, so the light pink, by using the sort of more old school techniques. The dark pink ones mean we wouldn't have identified these at all. And then that teal color um, means we could have identified them using some of the older technologies. And you can see there's not a lot of that teal because there's only four patients in that group where there was a diagnostically significant alteration that would have been completely identifiable using some of the older techniques. <clears throat> And Alana, what is the white in alterations by type? Um, oh, so those are ones that didn't have. So not all of the patients had diagnostic alterations, but the one of the ones that did. So those ones are the white, right? They don't. They didn't uh, have an alteration okay. that would have supported the diagnosis. Got it. Got it. Right. Yeah. 
So when we're putting all those together, we looked at another people graph where we saw um, that how the, the molecular alterations could have an impact on their care. And then we're looking at this patient cohort and putting together you know, our 17 patients who had a clarification of their diagnosis, patients who had uh, a recommendation for match targeted therapy, and either did or didn't receive match targeted therapy. And then we have that small group that had a, had a, a significant response to match targeted therapy. So again, we can see that we were able to really influence the care of most of the patients within this cohort, which was a really positive outcome. So one of the other conclusions that we have sort of hinted at along the way is that the gene fusions that we're seeing here are really common and they're really important. So 27% of the therapeutic recommendations were made on the basis of fusions. Some responder fusion of the diagnostically emotion 17 fusion. The reason it's really important to make this um, point over and over again is that when we think about the molecular assays that are out there and that are available, if we're thinking about that adult cancer model where gene fusions are less, less common and less important, many of those assays don't actually evaluate for fusions and they don't evaluate for the types of fusions that we would expect to see within this patient population. So we really want to advocate for including gene fusions as an important part of the molecular profiling process. And Ashley, I'm just curious because do most panels um, adult, if they are adult panels, you're saying that they don't include many fusions. So I don't know, like do places usually have like a separate panel panels for pediatric cancers, or is it usually just one panel? And um, You know, there's a lot of different models out there. So, I mean, for, for the Oncopanel assay, which was sort of the core technology that we were using for all of the patients in this study, you know, we did, you know, Katie and I and many others had influence over how that panel sort of came together at, from the design perspective. Um, and we were advocating for the inclusion of fusions there. And it's not that people that are, are primarily focused on adult cancers don't care about fusions at all. It's just that it's a, it's a smaller proportion and there isn't sort of as much data, especially on the diagnostic side, to sort of advocate for including those. And when you're doing a panel design, and this is something that I do and think about a lot, it's it's you can't put everything in, right? It's complicated. So you have to kind of focus, you know, prioritize and sort of focus on what is the most, you know, going to have the most impact for all of your patients and sort of look at all of those together. So the way that we have our molecular profiling setup now is that we do have different assays. So we have the Oncopanel assay, which has some fusions on it. And then we also are able to have our um, gene fusion um, sequencing assays in our lab at Ch Children's Hospital um, that really focus on fusions. And so we evaluate a lot of fusions and we wouldn't be able to fit all of those on the Oncopanel assay. There's just wouldn't be enough space. <clears throat> so that's the model that we have. Other groups do things differently. But there are a lot of like new, really great technologies that really allow for evaluation of many fusions all at once, sort of in a single assay, which is great. <clears throat> yeah, I'm just thinking because it's, you know, I don't know if it's something I ever thought about as, as, as a caregiver is kind of being that specific about thinking about which panel would be the best panel to use for testing. You kind of just go with whatever's available at your hospital or, or like Foundation Medicine is you yeah. know, a third problem that's used frequently. And I'm just wondering from like a patient perspective or even the, the oncologist perspective about like, if you have a pediatric cancer patient, you know, maybe choosing that panel more carefully to make sure that it includes as many gene fusions as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, you know, that's, it's, it is a tough thing to have to think about, right? You know, if you're going through a new diagnosis, um, and you have never thought about molecular sequencing yeah. panels before, um, you know, many of the uh, children's cancer centers, you know, do evaluate gene. This has changed a lot over just the last few years. So, you know, we're not the only ones who have noticed that gene fusions are important. And a lot of the pediatric cancer centers and foundation medicine has a nice, you know, um, list of gene fusions that are included in our assay as well. But I think I think it is a good point to sort of, you know, begin to sort of ask those questions about um, gene fusions um, and making sure that everything's being tested, especially some of the ones that, 
um, you know, we, where we saw the responders. So we had like BRAF, ALK fusions, those ones that are really targetable and where there are drugs available now that work really well. You really wouldn't want to leave one of those behind. You know what I mean? If that if that was there, you you would hate to miss one of those. Um, so having having covered those, I think is a really important part of of comprehensive care. And of course, we don't identify those in every patient. They're not there in in every patient. You know, but but again, you wouldn't want to miss one. <clears throat> Um, yeah, so this just making the point again, um, which we, which you just sort of nicely led me into is like, you know, when we're looking at this workflow, what the NGS panel is actually matters and sort of what tests is be, are being done, how, how they're evaluating gene fusions, what list of genes are on the fusion, you know what I mean, analysis really matters. Um, so we were hoping to advocate for including gene fusion testing for, for all children with cancer. So our conclusions from all of that work and, and just looking ahead are that um, first, molecular tumor profiling has a significant impact on diagnosis and on treatment recommendations for young patients with solid tumors. Um, these results really em emphasize the importance of fusion detection for patients with sarcomas and other rare tumors. And we would like to advocate for the use of molecular profiling and that it should, could, should become the standard of care um, on a clinical basis for children with cancer going forward. <clears throat> Um, so there's so many people to thank, in addition to all of you for being here with us today. Um, the patients and families are so important because all of this work really happened because they were willing to, you know, share their tissue and to, to be a part of this um, study. We got generous funding support from um, several funders who are listed here. And then in addition to all of the many authors, so we had people from 16 different institutions that participated in the analysis of all this data. Um, but we also had many physician and provider partners from all of these different cancer centers who referred patients and who supported the patients as they <clears throat> walked through the study. So thank you so much. Thank you. That was, um, and I mean, you know, I know that it's like so much work and so many years of work, um, and then kind of all represented in these like beautiful, concise graphics, which I know is a challenge to kind of put all that info into these, you know, little graphics. So, um, but it made sense of it all. So, thanks so much. Um, just a follow up question on the, the gene fusions again in the different panels. I'm just curious because there are, um, you know, new drugs coming out all the time now. Um, like, is there any sort of kind of centralized management of saying like, oh, okay, like we, now we know there's, there's a target therapy for this, uh, you know, alteration mutation. Um, let's make sure that those are included in our panels. I mean, I don't know if like different institutions that have their different panels are just kind of doing that on their own. And that's just kind of pretty standard thing that people do or, um, but it would just be good to know that like, oh, okay, regardless of what panel uh, we're, we're using, that it's going to scoop up all the kind of, you know, recent mutations where we know that there's like a, a targeted therapy available for that, that it could be actionable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question. And I will say that as like a molecular lab director myself that, you know, I'm very lucky to work with Katie and all these other wonderful oncologists who really spend a lot of time and energy and understanding what is available now and what might be available because, you know, there's also a, a long fuse to like developing an assay and validating it and getting it up and running. So we don't want to only know what's available today. We, you know, certainly turn to Dr. Janeway and her colleagues and say what, what might be coming, um, you know what I mean, next year or the year after. And it is very complicated to, to keep track of all those things. And, you know, we sort of lean on one another's expertise. So, uh, you know, the pathologists think a lot about the diagnostics. And so we kind of take the lead on that side of what are the alterations that might impact a diagnosis. And then the oncologists really, you know, are, take the lead on what might influence targeted therapy. Um, and we really have to work together. And, and it is... <clears throat> it's an ongoing challenge, you know, even as much as I spend all my time thinking about this, I don't have, you know what I mean? I can't keep track of all of the, the drugs that are in there. And one of the supplemental figures that we had in the paper showed also the change. So for the same alteration, what sort of level of evidence it had at the time the report went out to the time when we did the reanalysis and there was a ton of change. So things going in different directions, some went up, some went down, some stayed the same. Um, and so there was a lot of work happening in the back end to keep track of all of that. 
Thanks. And then um, I think we have a couple questions from the audience. Uh, Vicki, you wanted to ask those. Oh, and thanks. And I see Dr. Janeway's um, putting some more info in the chat. Yes, great. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna come in with um, Ian Holsworth's question. He asked how many different tumor panels are available uh, to children. He said Oncotype, Foundation One, MSK. Uh, and are gene fusions currently being offered in any of the major profiling tests? Um, I'm not sure how, how many exact, you know, I don't have an exact number, but I know that um, the children's cancer centers that I know of, the major children's cancer centers around the country all have their own assays and they are all aware of gene fusions and are, you know, making efforts to evaluate gene fusions. Um, Foundation certainly has, you know, as we just said, like a, a very nice assay. They have a lot of fusions on there. Memorial Saloon Kettering has a, a, a you know, they, they, they see a lot of children with cancer there as well, even though they're not like a, you know what I mean, that they're sort of a comprehensive cancer center, but they have a, a nice assay that's very similar to the one that we have in our lab in terms of the technology that's being used. And they evaluate a lot of different fusions at the same time. <clears throat> So these tests are out there, you know, it's not that we're, we're holding on to the one and only test that is available to do this. And I think a lot of the, uh, you know, advocacy that we're hoping, you know, will come out of this is that um, any ch child with a new cancer diagnosis is getting access to one of these profiling tests, you know, whether it's at our center or one of the other cancer centers or through one of the commercial labs. Thank you. And the uh, the next question by uh, Sabine was, how much time is there for testing since a lot of osteosarcoma tumors can grow very quickly? Well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> um, it depends a lot on what's happening with the patient, right? So I think, you know, where these, we, where these treatments come in and, it, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of great targeted therapy treatment options that come up for, for most of our osteosarcoma patients, you know, unfortunately at this time, that's why sort of as, as Katie Janeway is pointing out in, in the chat here, it's so important for these drugs to be developed. And so that's a lot of what's coming out of like the turbo and the factor conferences as some of these things going forward. Um, depending on what's happening with the patient. And again, this is like a conversation between them and their oncologist and their surgeon, but a lot of times at the early stages, the patients are following the standard of care. And I think there's a lot of good data to support that that makes sense, you know, for them to do that at that time. Uh, and just to follow up to that. Oh, sorry, Vic, I was just going to pop in because I know Sabine asked a question and it's kind of crossed over with the question I had too, which was, um, should testing be done before? map is started like at diagnosis or is there still a first line um, or is it still a first line treatment and then kind of related to that other question about um, like in terms of recommendations for when you test the importance of testing as Sabine asked like at diagnosis up front and then the importance of testing over time and do you see because I think you did have a few samples in there where you kind of got some longitudinal data um, do you see the pro, you know the the tumor profile changing over time, or does it remain pretty consistent with consistent drivers? And so, and then I guess then the indication for like it's important to keep testing at each relapse every time you get a new sample. That's a complicated question. I'm not sure that we have really data to make a, a kind of blanket recommendation. You know what I mean about that. But we do see some changes that develop over time. You know, for the for the same patient, and it depends so much on sort of what the genetic alterations were, kind of at the beginning, and then you can develop kind of you know clonal expansion of some, you know, sort of populations of cancer cells kind of within the patient, also depending on the treatment, right? So some of the treatment, um, especially some of the harsh treatments can, can create sort of DNA changes as well um, and that we might see. Uh, we haven't, yeah, that, that, that's a, a topic for future research. I mean, I think is to, to continue to look at that and to sort of see what we can glean from, from continued testing over time. And there's a lot of different things, you know, 
I, as a diagnostic person would say, it's great to test, do these right at the time of diagnosis, because if there was something that was gonna influence the diagnosis, as we did see in some of the patients in this group, um, you of course want to do that earlier, right? You don't want to find out that you, you know, have been moving forward with the, you know, wrong information about the diagnosis until later on. So diagnostically, absolutely, you want to test as soon as possible. With respect to like the match targeted therapy treatment selection, it depends a lot on what that diagnosis was. So we want to make sure to get that right. Um, but many of the patients, even who have a targetable alteration, may not, you know, be el eligible or want to pursue tar match targeted therapy early on. Did I? There was a few different things that you asked me there. Did I get everything? <laughs> yeah, no, I think you did. And I also just wanted to point out because you know, um, Amanda Marinoff was was on um, a few weeks ago talking yeah. about her work with Mick, and and Mick is a. Yeah. Um, uh, biomarker and so she kind of you know I think one of her points is that it's it's definitely like a great uh, biomarker for risk stratification perhaps mm -hmm. even more so than what's commonly used today which is necrosis right yeah. after neoadjuvant chemo and so um that combined you know work that like she's doing to do that combined with this what I really appreciate about this paper is that it was kind of making the case to say hey this should be covered by insurance because this is clearly, you know, providing um, helpful data that is actionable. And so I'm just curious kind of how to, we're, you know, where we currently are to getting to the point where it does become standard of care that's covered by insurance. Kind of how yeah, the insurance reimbursement is such a complicated issue. Um, and I would love to see some movement there where it becomes more standard of care. And it, you know, that was really a motivator for doing this study and sort of designing this, this interim analysis in the way that we did um, to sort of get these data out there to, to show how, to show the benefit, right? To, to sort of generate some of that advocacy. Um, so the insurance um, payers really all have different policies, you know, around reimbursement for molecular tumor profiling, you know, in adults and children. So there's a lot of um, variability in what people are getting access to. Um, and, you know, again, we sort of used that early example, example in the early slides about lung cancer. And if we, we hope to follow that kind of model where we've seen that the data have come out over years about how important molecular profiling is for patients at the time of diagnosis, that it's really driving the treatment decisions, you know, both early on and then as the patients progress, you know, if they have uh, metastatic disease, for example, and need to change therapy, that a lot of those decisions are really made based on the molecular um, profile. And so that data has been really strong um, and has really pushed the field so that there are guidelines, you know, from professional societies that say that this is what we ought to be doing for every patient. And that kind of work, you know, really is what I think makes it difficult for a payer to, to, to say that, you know, that this is just a research study and that it's not really clinically relevant. And that is some of the feedbacks that we get sometimes, um, you know, when we've been trying to pursue reimbursement for these types of tests. Um, it, it, that this is a very complicated issue. And I think, you know, people who are listening who have some roles in, in advocating for uh, patients, you know, can, can potentially have a, an influence there. Well, this is another good, you know, like arrow kind of in the, in the people can whip out the, this paper when they're kind of arguing with the insurance on coverage. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the, the best thing to do if we can, and it's hard to do this, like I think as a, a you know what I mean, a person, you know, an individual, but is to really try to influence the policy, you know, not just arguing with a payer around a specific claim, but to try to influence some of the policy um, that, you know, sort of underlies the way that they kind of approach the claims that will be coming in going forward. Yeah, definitely. Great. And I think I'll just cut it. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say Vicky, I think, has another cue from the audience. Yeah. Um, our next question is of those molecular alterations that were tested in this study, uh, what specific percentage of the alterations were druggable? And were there any alterations with a high prevalence that are not currently druggable? 
Um, there are a lot, you know, I think Katie wrote a nice comment in the chat here about drugs and um, gene targets. So we have these big gene panels and we see a lot of alterations and they don't all have, you know, targeted treatments that you, we can even make recommendations for. Um, so we do have, I don't know if I'm able to like answer specifically what, you know, there's a, there's a, a range of, of molecular alterations that we see and we included all that data for this cohort you know as part of the publicly available data set um you know to help you know help researchers kind of going forward and it would be great to have more drugs available to children to um you know tp53 was a great example that we saw in that graph right so we had um a few years ago there was uh, a lot of there were we, a lot of recommendations were going out of the study for we one inhibitors for patients with tp53 alterations and we have many patients with tp53 alterations whether they're gene fusions or mutations um and then that was one of the ones that went from being kind of a higher evidence um, for potential response to targeted treatment to being, you know what I mean, the evidence kind of thinned out over the years. So if there was something that came in that would help there, you know, that would be great. And, and we do have a large proportion of, of patients sort of within this cohort who had alterations there, and a, you know, but there's not, there's not a, a great drug to recommend. So that would be a, a nice example. I mean, I think some of the other ones that we saw where we know there are drugs kind of out there are, um, uh, you know, MEK inhibitors, PARP inhibitors, and some of the other targeted um, pathways and th some things that are, are increasingly available for adults and maybe less so for children, but um, could certainly use some drug development in those, um, those pathways. We have a couple more minutes and um, Alana, I just wanted to, to ask this question too. So there were, I think there were what, like 64, 65 osteo cases I think yep. in sample set. And then um, it, there were a couple of papers that were published recently by some teams at Memorial Sloan that they looked at um, same similar type genomic profiling and soft tissue and bone sarcomas. And I think one of them looked at the um, uh, data set using the MSK impact panel. Mm -hmm. And then one was actually looking at the foundation med um, database and there, there were quite large numbers there. and. Um, but not, not pediatric focused. It was kind of all bone and soft tissue sarcomas. And I'm curious, like at what point, like how big of a sample do we need to get to a point where we can start to identify, like and quantify the subtypes of osteo? So I know at Factor, actually, Dr. Jamie had mentioned like, you know, this is, osteo is not, at one point, it's gonna be like different diseases. Like what kind of osteo do you have? Yeah. Um, and uh, so wondering at what point can we get, because, you know, you have some data that we're like, okay, this percent had a TB53, um, mm -hmm. this percent had this type of fusion, and we have more data from other data sets. I don't know if it's comparing apples to oranges or not, but at what point can we then start to say like, okay, look, these are the different subtypes we're aware of, and, you know, this is roughly, you know, kind of how common they are um, and, and how big each of these baskets are. I don't have like a number to give you, but I, I I know this is part of the work that you know you alluded to Amanda Marinoff's study that she did with Dr. Janeway, and um you know that was like a great one, and we've seen this happen in other tumor types. If you think about neuroblastoma, which is another pediatric tumor, um where the patients are really being stratified according to you know, some molecular data, some other data like their age, you know, their stage at presentation. And it takes a lot of work. And so that's part of why the work that Amanda did was so important where you have that patient's outcome and their genetic alteration and all this sort of really granular clinical data about how they presented to create these, these molecular, you know, in, partly informed by molecular, but, you know, groupings of, of uh, patients. And it is challenging in any rare tumor to be able to get the numbers together to do that. So I don't know what the num magic number is, but I think we're getting there. And, and it, it is sometimes hard to put data together from different centers, but, you know, the assays aren't so different that it's that it's impossible to do that. And so and and pediatric oncologists in particular, I think are very good at 
collaborating. <laughs> so there are, you know, quite a few collaborative efforts that are happening to put these data sets together. And then also, you know, we spoke about this at the Factor Conference too, but really making sure that people are doing the work as much as they can to to share any data that you generate, right? Like we're, we have the data from this study that, you know, is now out there and, and hopefully others can make use of it. Um, and many of the other cancer centers are doing the same thing. We're also, you know, happy to be working with the Count Me In study and, and we'll be generating more data. In that study with a real, you know, focus on osteosarcoma, which will also be generating publicly available data sets. And so, those efforts together, I think, will really support the kind of work that you're talking about, about creating these um, subtypes with a lot of evidence behind them to say why they're important. So it's not just that they look different under the microscope, but that to show that they really behave differently um, and that they should be treated differently. Right. Thanks so much. Unfortunately, there's there was so much to talk about. We're already out of time. Um, but uh, we'll make sure, especially uh, when we send out um, kind of a follow-up from this webinar, we'll include the link again to the actual paper so you can get all the details. Thank you so much, Dr. Church, for joining us on Osteobites today and for making it better for pediatric oncology patients everywhere. Um, more information about this and all Osteobites can be found on YouTube and on our website at mibhs.org or your favorite podcast place. And next week, join us um, Thursday, July 14th. We're going to be talking to Dr. Chris Collier. He's a surgeon scientist who leads innovative basic science and clinical research to improve outcomes for his patients. And he's an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And he's going to be discussing unanswered clinical questions in sarcoma, opportunities to move from bedside to bench. But that's next week. So thank you again to Dr. Church and Vicki for spending an hour with us today and to our sponsor, the Osteosarcoma Institute. And thank you for joining us today on Osteobites. We hope to see you next week when we chat with Dr. Chris Collier. And in the meantime, you can go to our website at mibagents.org to sign up for um, Outrunning Osteosarcoma and to order a bow for Childhood Cancer Awareness Month in September. And also thank you to Dr. Janeway for, um, for being on and for helping answer questions in the chat um, and adding a little bit more color there too. So thanks everyone. Um, thank you, Dr. Church and Vicki, and we will see you next week.